Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Today I'm talking to Emma Carter, author, mother, emotional coach and therapist. Emma was born in a small town in South Wales and now lives in Derbyshire with her two children, a cat who likes nothing more than jumping on her laptop when she is working, and a scruffy but adorable dog who melts everyone's heart. Emma has always been passionate about helping others, which led her into a career in healthcare. Continuously searching for solutions to help her daughter, who is suffering from anorexia nervosa, she's completed several courses and gained a better understanding of mental health illnesses and eating disorders. And this ignited a fire in her belly to make a difference, and she is now a trained emotional coach and therapist. By listening to other parents and carers, Emma saw a need to share her story by writing a book, Slaying Monsters, Dodging Donuts. Writing this book has been a cathartic way to help her deal with her daughter developing anorexia and she hopes that it will support others on the same path. Emma admits to being a fan of Welsh rugby and loves watching matches with her family, particularly if they win. When she's not writing or supporting her daughter, she enjoys spending time outdoors, walking her dog and taking photographs. In the episode today, you'll hear all about Emma's journey in supporting her daughter through anorexia nervosa. Emma shares openly her coping strategies for staying sane. She talks about mistakes she's made and what has helped most. This is an incredible conversation and will be hugely inspiring and supportive for anyone listening who is supporting someone with an eating disorder. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. So, Emma, could I get you firstly, please, just to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes. So I'm Emma Carter and I'm just a mum. <laughs> That's how I induce myself. I'm just a mum supporting my daughter through her eating disorder, anorexia. And I say just a mum because I don't have any special skills. I don't have anything other than the love of my daughter and determination to get her through this, which is why I often just say to myself as just a mum. Okay. Hey, thank you, Emma. So Emma, I'm aware that your daughter Poppy has been so going through anorexia nervosa recovery. So could you share a little bit about sort of her story in terms of, of course, you know, what you're comfortable to share and just a little bit about how that experience has been, you know, for her and also for you? Yeah, definitely. Well, it happened around COVID time and it wasn't something that I expected. And when I say it happened, Working from home, I was working sort of from eight o'clock. It was so hectic till sort of six o'clock. And I noticed her anxiety was getting higher than it had been. And I put that a lot of down to being at home and schoolwork. And and I wasn't able to have meals with her just because I had back-to-back meetings. And it was little snippets where I noticed that some of the meals that I prepared, instead of last in two days they were last in three days and it just kind of didn't quite ring an alarm bell for me and I just said look just make sure that you plate up what you should be plating up and and there was just a few things where she'd say oh yeah I've already had my food and then I'd go okay and my daughter was one of those that I never 
needed to question her. She never lied to me. So it was really, it didn't factor into my head at all about maybe I need to consider anything. And it was just sort of snippets. And I didn't unfortunately join the dots until it was too late. And looking back, when you look back, Ingo, it was so obvious, but I just didn't see it. And nobody that I knew had an eating disorder. And the only first time I remember it was when I was about 14 and I was watching something in my grand's house and it was around Karen Carpenter and her dying. And I was remember feeling so upset that somebody was, their life was cut so short. And it was only that that I noticed. And and it was just things that I was thinking. I wasn't quite comfortable about what was happening. And I had this gut instinct that something wasn't quite right, but I just didn't know what it was. And then I started putting things together. I noticed her anxiety around mealtimes. I noticed that she wasn't eating. She was cutting out sort of sweet things, crisps when she used to love cheese. There were certain things that she wouldn't eat. And it all just kind of came together. And I just thought, oh, I wonder if it is contact the GP. We're obviously in COVID time, so we weren't able to go and see the GP at that point. And they suggested that I use some websites, come back in three months. And and I was like, "Mm, I'm really not quite happy about this. And I just carried on pushing through. Anyway, the short story is we managed to go to the GP and I noticed that she had this pear smell on her. And it turns out that her body was using as much as it could do of her energy, which is why she was getting the ketones in her water. And then not long after that, then we got sent through to the CAMS eating disorder unit. And then within a week, she was, unfortunately, she was admitted. And then it just, it came so quickly and out of the blue with all of this. So within three weeks, they said her heart was close to giving up and it just literally rocked my world I hadn't expected it. We had obviously the all of the upset with COVID. And then it was like, how did I miss this? And I, from my perspective, I spent a lot of time thinking, why did I miss it? How did I miss it? I should have done this. I should have had more meals together. Why didn't I do this? So there was a lot of guilt. And unfortunately, we've been on this journey now for three years and we're not out of the woods yet. But I know we will be. And it has been such a roller coaster of emotions just from scared, being angry, frustrated, then one minute hopeless, and then going through the shame and the guilt, and then back to anger, and then back to worry. And a year ago, she was in intensive care. And I remember the consultant saying to me, I can't guarantee that she's going to come through this. She was really unwell. and Her heart was beating to 26 beats per minute. And it was such a scary time. But I couldn't describe to you how I just, I knew that she was going to be okay. And I couldn't describe to you how I knew that. I just had this unbelief that this was not going to be the end and she was going to come through it. And I'm glad to say she did. But we still, obviously, we're still in it and we are having battles through this. And that was why, one of the reasons why I wrote a book. So I wrote the book, Slaying Monsters, Dodging Donuts. And that was to share my experience really with other parents about the highs and lows of supporting somebody with an eating disorder. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that, Emma. And it sounds like it's been such an intense roller coaster of emotions (laughs) over the last few years. (laughs) Would you mind if I just pick up on a few things from the things you just talked about? 
yeah that's fine yeah so I'm just already interested like it sounds like it was a you know a real surprise when Poppy first perhaps became unwell you know I think it's really understandable in a way why would she be looking for signs and you know particularly perhaps if she'd had like a healthy relationship with food before and think it's such a common thing isn't it that we kind of miss those signs early on I think you know most people can relate to that and the eating disorders are very secretive as well but I'm wondering as well when you sort of like look back in hindsight as well did it really feel like it kind of came out of the blue in terms of like do you feel like before her relationship with food was on the whole pretty healthy and you know and she was doing reasonably well I mean obviously there was COVID but you know did it really feel it was like such a surprise really it did and it didn't, I think it's fair to say. So she had always been, you know, she's like me, got a very sweet tooth. But yes, yeah, she would always enjoy the fruit. She'd love nothing more than tucking into whatever fruit you could give her. She'd love that. But she would be biscuits, anything. And we would have, we would go out most weekends and we'd go to the coffee shop and she would have her usual cake with the Smarties on. And it just seemed to, all of a sudden, in some respects, it just seemed to stop, but it hadn't. I think like what you're saying, as you look back, you go, they were quite subtle, but I just didn't notice it. The thing's just like, oh, mum, I'm not going to have that. So at Lent, every year at Lent, she would, just like a friend, she would stop eating something. So it might be cakes or biscuits. And she did that year. So it wasn't, that wasn't different. But then it seemed to carry on a little bit, which you kind of like, oh, okay. And then I noticed that when I picked her up sometimes for appointments, she hadn't eaten all of her lunch, but she ate it in the car. So I was like, okay, that's fine. And then it was during COVID that there was this big, I wouldn't say push, but there was a lot of interest about doing activity over COVID periods. And it was something that we did together, but I noticed that I might do it two or three times a week, but I noticed that she was doing it four or five. And then it got to a point where I think she was doing it six times or seven. And I was like, whoa, actually your body needs to rest. And she seemed to listen, but unknown to me, she was still doing the exercise in her bedroom. And I think you're right. When you start looking for it, you can see it. But some of it was... If I'd gone for the shower, I'd come downstairs and she'd say, oh, I've had my sandwich. And I'd go, okay, but I thought we were going to do that together. And you just have that little doubt in your head. And, oh, mum, I've had my breakfast. And you look at the bowl and you go, well, it just looks as if there's some strategically mixed cereal in the bottom. Or the knife looked as if it was strategically placed in the butter. And it's all those bits that you think, it's just not right. But because I never expected her to lie to me, it made it even more difficult. And it was only then when you piece things together. And we were never, I was never a family that we would, I wouldn't go on a diet. So there was no real diet talk in our house. But unknown to me, I'd been labeling food good or bad, but indirectly. And I hadn't recognized that I did that. So for example, if somebody said to me, oh, do you want this cake? Then I'd go, well, actually, no, it's all right. Thanks. I'm being good. But I didn't see that as me being on a diet. I just saw that was me going, actually, no, as a nicer way to say no. And I hadn't realized that I was labeling it a little bit for her. So it was only after this that I think, oh gosh, there's a little bit of learning for me as well. 
But yeah, I think when you piece it all together, it was so obvious, especially around the exercise. And then I remember once trying to get her to have a satsuma, something which she wouldn't have had a problem with. And it was as if it was poison. There was no way that she was going to eat that. And then I thought, whoa, you know, we're in trouble now. This is not great. And that confirmed to me that she's got an eating disorder. But at that time, we hadn't got the help. It literally just, then it just seemed to snowball, I think. Mm, yeah, and it's sure. Yeah, and it's so hard, I think, when you start talking about like the good and bad food thing, I think it's so important to be compassionate to yourself as a parent, though, isn't it? Because I think as well, we do grow up in a culture, don't we, where so much of that language is very normalised. And I think, in a way, if you haven't ever had an opportunity or a good reason to question it, we're just sort of unconsciously repeating the narrative, aren't we, that we hear all the time and that we have absorbed. Yeah, definitely. Because I know I've before I've said to her about things, you know, it's about having a balance. I've always kind of said it to her, it's about having a balance, having a bit of this and having a bit of that. Whereas now my 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 narrative <laughs> has completely changed coming through this, which is quite good. And I'm much more susceptible now to conversations of things like that now. Mm, sure. So obviously, like the causes of eating disorders are so complex. And I think, you know, for young people growing up today, sadly, it's almost become a rite of passage for many people to go through a phase, perhaps, you know, where they're feeling really rubbish in their self-esteem, they're suffering with anxiety and low mood. And then we've had COVID and not able to have the normal social connections. And I think all the pressure of social media and the comparison culture that, you know, there's so many different factors that I think play into, you know, the way our young people think and feel. And even with the kind of most robust and supportive family set up in the first place, I think, you know, everyone is really, really vulnerable. And I'm sure Poppy is still on her own journey and trying to kind of piece together and make sense of this eating disorder but I guess yes. I'm wondering as well, in terms of, you know, just any of your reflections on how anorexia has maybe been for her a sort of coping strategy or a life raft through some difficult times, you know, and maybe you're still sort of piecing that together. But I just wondered if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think she's still piecing that together because I know the conversations that we've had, because she's had this now for three years she has said that she can't remember without it, which I find incredibly sad. And that was something that I really struggled going through this journey, that the daughter that I once knew, I lost. I lost that fun, not loving, because she is still loving, but that fun, carefree, giggling, that I would be able to go to the coffee shop with, that I would be able to go to the cinema with, that I'd be able to do all those things or able to go for a walk with and just go for a walk. Whereas now the eating disorder thoughts are there. Even when she's going for a walk, she struggles to sit down and it's robbed us of so much. But I find it so sad that she can't remember what she was like. But I do try to remind her and I said, look, you know, if I look back when I was 14, I can't remember what I was like. And I'm a completely different person now to what I was then. And you don't expect it to be the same person because of your experiences. And in a way, that can be quite exciting. So I try to kind of frame that for her. Mm. But from her perspective, it started off as something that 
she it gave her something. I think that was if she probably would describe it. It made her feel whole again in some way. But then it very quickly turned from being a supportive friend to her to a baddie. And to the point now where she's still very much controlled by her thoughts in relation to she can't go to bed until it's a certain time. She has to get up at a certain time. Even with food, for example, this week I've had quite a few things on. So I've said to her, look, I really need to make sure that your food is prepped before a certain time when you're sat down. And she's like, oh, mum, that's really quite anxious for me. So we're working on all those things. And it's an ongoing thing, if that makes sense. We moved the goalposts, but then very quickly they can move back and then you've got to keep moving it again. So it's not as if you can go, right, I've done it now and that's it. You constantly got to be kind of be hitting it sometimes. So I think from her perspective, it did help her. And it has been a way that she control her emotions and control how she's feeling because she'll probably be the first one to admit that when it was awful time, all the emotions stopped. She didn't feel. But then when she started on her recovery, they all came back. So, for example, when she's at school and it can be quite difficult for her, one way for her to cope is to restrict And we're trying to get her to see now that actually there are other ways that you can do to manage that, to cope. It doesn't always have to be your default. And we talk sometimes about being like stepping out of a cave, if you like. And at the moment, she's just taking her foot out of the cave, if you like, and looking, seeing if it's safe. Not kind of quite sure if she wants to step out and then going back into the cave, which is the ED. We're just trying to encourage her that actually keep going out of that cave. Yes, it's going to be scary. Yes, it's going to be anxious. But there's a big, exciting world out there for you with lots of opportunities. And you can develop who you are away from the ED. And she's just beginning to see that, if that makes sense, that she doesn't necessarily have to rely on that as a way to cope. And she's currently having DBT, diabetic therapy. And that is helping her with how she can control her emotions, how she can control or manage some of her thoughts that she's getting. But that takes time. Mm, Yeah, no, definitely. I think thank you so much for sharing that as well, because I think sometimes we forget with an eating disorder, don't we? And I think, you know, many people perhaps out there as well who don't really understand sort of eating disorders in the mental health sense, you know, they are psychological coping strategies, not one that someone chooses or not even a conscious thing but if you are restricting your food or you're controlling your body it can be a way to perhaps feel safer or to numb or distract from difficult feelings and like you're saying perhaps particularly like with your daughter at least initially that probably felt quite good didn't it you know obviously very quickly it it wasn't but it provides a lot of safety doesn't it and then it can feel very scary like you're talking about coming out of the cave and, you know, starting to feel some of those emotions again when you have been a bit cut off from them. Yeah, she does say to me she wish she never started this. She often says she wish she could take a pill or something to get rid of that, if that makes sense, because she knows how much she's controlled by it, how much it influences and from her, but she knows that she's just got to keep going and keep pushing past those but a lot of the time she's just exhausted and as a parent it's so hard seeing your child and as you were saying it's a mental health illness and it's really hard because 
if she was two, when she fell down on grazed knee, you know, a magic hug from me or a plaster, a magic plaster, that was it, sorted. <laughs> I was the best parent of the world. But I can't do that now. And I found that really frustrating that I couldn't fix it or fix it quick enough because I never wanted this life for my daughter. And I know none of us do. And it's so hard watching them struggle day in, day out. And sometimes you know what needs to be done. You know, you know that you've got to keep pushing forward, but it's not all about me fixing it. And I think that for me has been a really hard journey for me to learn that at times I need to step in and push and support and encourage. But other times I've got to try and walk alongside her and get her to come up with the solutions and try and motivate her to do that. I found that really hard sometimes. Mm. But I think you're not alone there, Emma. And I think it's incredibly validating actually for any other parents or carers listening because of, you know, like, as you said, you know, when your daughter was younger, you could have come in with a magic faster, you could have fixed it, you could have made it all better. But with an eating disorder, with the best one in the world, like trying to come in and fix it, actually sometimes that can just kind of make things worse can't it or you know it's not the most helpful thing to do yeah because it's quite funny actually my daughter you wouldn't describe her she's quiet so you would never have described her as defiant or anything but I have seen a completely different side of her (laughs) than ever and when she's been in hospital and she's talking to the staff and they're telling her to sit down because she really struggles to sit down and you're just thinking, well, whoa, you know, that's a completely different side to it than I've ever seen. And if you said to her, like you were just saying then, if you'd said to her, right, I want you to sit down, sit down, sit down, she's more likely, she says herself, if you tell me that, I'm more likely to stand up. And it's about how you frame it for her and how you motivate her to do that. And you're more likely to get the better response, and better results that way. But as a parent, you just want to say, well, you just sit down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, of course you do. It's kind of like the logical, natural helping response, isn't it? Coming with great intentions. Yeah. (laughs) So one thing I'm really curious about, Emma, as well, is like it sounds like, you know, you went to the doctors and you sort of pursued the sort of help path or whatever. So was Poppy sort of open to that? Because I'm guessing as well, like I'm sure there's probably some people listening to this that might be thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I can see all these signs and worrying symptoms. But actually, every time I try and talk to my son or daughter about it, you know, Mm -hmm. they're like, no, there's no problem. You know, what are you making a big thing out of nothing? I'm completely fine. You know, and I'm just wondering, you know, was your daughter receptive to the possibility of getting help or able to acknowledge that there was a problem? I think that's really hard because I suppose I didn't take no for an answer. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. I think we've got that sort of relationship. I think when I was worried, so I remember bringing the GP at that point to say I was worried. So she wasn't part of that conversation. And then when the GP said, come back in three months, and I thought, "Mm, do you know what? I'm not happy about this. And then I just pushed it. I pushed it again. And then I managed to get her to the GP. And I don't, I think I just said, look, I probably used to think, I'm really worried about you. You know, to me, you're looking quite anxious. And I suppose in a way I'd been validating her a little bit in how she was feeling. So I'd kind of got her on side, but unknowingly I got her on side. And I probably... And said, right, actually, this is the appointment we just need to go. And I 
I think the first time they were just going to do some bloods. So I probably pitched it more as actually they're just going to do a bit of a check with you. And then it was then that we'd worked out, actually, this is a little bit more serious now. And I remember the eating disorder team rung us after she was having the bloods. And they were asking all these questions. And I think at that point then I was like, whoa, I did not realise it was that bad when she was saying about the exercise. And they were saying to her, look, we need you to stop doing any walking. And she was so distraught at that point that I thought, yeah, yeah, this is serious now. So I didn't have a challenge from her on that one. I think she mm. probably knew down that something wasn't right. But I think if I had... I probably would have said actually that I am worried about you and I think let's go and get an appointment and just get you checked out more so that I can be satisfied that we're okay, that I can be satisfied to stop me from worrying. So I probably would have pitched it more as actually, you know what I'm like, I'm going to worry. So why don't we just get you checked out and I can put my mind at rest? Mm, Sure. And so you talked about, you know, really understandably the natural inclination when your child is unwell is that you want to fix it, don't you? You want to do everything you possibly can as a parent to try and make it better. But obviously, like we've, you know, just touched on the fact that sometimes with an eating disorder, that's not always the most helpful thing to do. And sometimes if you push a bit more, actually it can make things worse or it kind of causes the person to rebel or push back. So, yeah, so I wonder if you, I know we were sort of talking just before we came sort of on air about the Maudsley animal model. And I know you've been using some of those tools and supporting Poppy. So could you tell us a little bit about sort of your journey in terms of like, you know, perhaps some of the rabbit holes you went down in terms of like trying to support, but realizing that wasn't so helpful. And then how you've kind of moving to a place where you feel, you know, at least most of the time, you know, because we're all imperfect, aren't we, with this? It's really hard that yeah. you are kind of trying to step more into a place where you can be supportive in a helpful way. Yeah, I think I struggled so much in the beginning, especially when it was confirmed that she had an eating disorder and when she went into hospital. And I didn't know that much about it. And I was the type of person that I read everything and anything. So the amount of books that got delivered to my house within the first few weeks, and I just literally lived and breathed it. So you name it, I would search anything and everything to find answers, to try and find ways. And I think it was really more because I knew that I couldn't, I just wasn't getting any with it with her. So with regard to when she was discharged from hospital the first time, she seemed to be doing okay. And then everything seemed to go backwards. And then the arguments were started. And I'm that type of person where I hate confrontation. I just hate it. So when we're talking about the animals from the Maudsley, I am a bit like an emu in that I will put my head under the sand because I just don't like it. And I'll do anything and anything not to. And I'm a little bit like the kangaroo in a way that if I could have picked up my daughter and done something to fix it I would have done but that's not always the right thing to do I have (laughs) you name it I have tried so many I've even become a coach I did a coaching thing so that I could find ways to use the right motivational questions for her and I'm now an emotional therapist coach 
And this was all because I wanted to help her. I've done some grief recovery training, which sounds strange, but grief is just, it's not just about losing somebody. I recognised that I'd lost my daughter for those three years. So in a way, it helped me. But everything I did was to help her. And I just noticed that there were times when I was so frustrated and angry. And there was one point where I'd made her her tea and she just could not cope with it. And we were stood in the kitchen, even though we'd moved into from the living room into the kitchen. And she was throwing the food back to me. And I was just thinking, you are having this in my head. So I was the rhino. Because I was like, you were. De- I'm determined that you're going to have this. And it just escalated and escalated. And I could feel myself getting so angry and frustrated because I thought, I've got to get her to eat this because things are getting out of control. And I could see not pound signs. I could see calorie signs running away from me like, my gosh, she really needs to eat this. How am I going to get her to eat it? And I was so angry. I remember picking up the food. And this sounds awful to say it. And I threw it in the bin. But then afterwards, I thought, oh, no, what have you done? Because I've just played into the eating disorders hands. And I knew at that point that I couldn't do that again. Or, And I'm not saying it didn't happen again because, we, you know, we all get frustrated mm. and angry. But I had to find a better way to do that for her. And it was then really that I tried lots of ways to approach this with her. And one of the key ways that I found was validating So if I was able to validate and to understand, so I took time to really understand what was going on. So I'd say, look, you know, I want to know, I want to know really what's going on for you. It's really important for me to understand how you're feeling, what's going on. Tell me a little bit more. And I'd obviously choose the right moment and she'd open up, which is, we've got a really great relationship like that, that she can talk to me. And by me then having that information, I was able to feed that back. So I was able to say, actually, you know, that sounds incredibly hard. And if I was to put myself in your shoes, I can imagine that you're scared right now and that you are frustrated. And you're probably really annoyed with me right now because I am asking you to eat something that you're scared of. And it helped. And I was like, oh, wow. And it even helped me then because I wasn't feeling as frustrated because at some point I found I was getting anxious as well at meal times. Because if you think about it, six times a day, you know, three meals, three snacks, I knew what was coming. And I often say to people, it was like, if I was a soldier, I'd have the right training, I'd have the right equipment, I'd have the armor, and I'd have a team around me. But at times I felt I had nothing. And I felt unprepared and really vulnerable going into battle because I knew what was coming. I knew the shouting was there. It wasn't just the shouting, it was, you know, it was awful some of the things. It was just so unlike her. And it was really hard seeing that level of distress from your loved one. And I was doing that to her six times a day and it just, oh, I hated it. So I had to find a way of putting my armour on so that I was able to get through. And one of the things that I did, and I know this sounds really silly, but I had to kind of prepare myself, if you like, for all that confrontation that was coming. So I wouldn't back down and I could do it in a more compassionate way. So before I went into the kitchen, I would stand a bit like a superhero. Now I said this is going to be silly. So I stand like a superhero and and I know 
they say there is some evidence of you standing like that, you know, hands on your hip or, or hands in the air for a minute or two. But also I would play a little bit of music, even put some, you know, the earpods in my, and one of my favorite ones is Unstoppable, put your armor on. And I just let those words flow through me. I put my armor on, show you how strong I am and I'm unstoppable. And it sounds weird to say this, but it just gave me that little bit of boost as if to go, right, Emma, you've got this. You can do this. You know you're going to go into battle. You know that she's going to be shouting and screaming at you, but you know that that emotional wave, that fear and fright that she's going through, it will go, but you're just going to have to ride it right now. And the first time I did it, I felt silly, but the first time I did it, I always wanted to do a little bit of a dance because I, yes, I did it. (laughs) And I just kept doing it again. Every time where I just thought, oh, I'm going to go in battle again. I just have that kind of either note to myself, a little bit of music, make myself giggle with a silly stance, that kind of stuff, or my big girl pants. Imagine I've got my big girl pants. Come on, Emma, you've got this. But I just, it gave me that confidence, if you like to go, I've got this. And it did make a difference. I'm not saying every time it worked, but it made me feel a little bit better. Give me that kind of inner calm, if you like, for my emotions, which is what I needed at that time. Yeah, it makes so much sense, actually. And I think, you know, thank you so much for sharing just, you know, that very sort of personal journey of how you really practically dealt with something that was very, very challenging. Because it is a huge thing, isn't it, to deal with like multiple meal times a day. And if your loved one is very distressed and you know there's going to be heightened emotion, it makes so much sense, really, that you do need to prepare yourself to get yourself in a sort of calm and more prepared state so that you can, I guess, be more proactive rather than reactive. Because if you're just launching in, you know, without having given yourself those few moments with the best will in the world as a human being, if you're met with a lot of distress or anger, intense emotion, you know, you're going to be much more likely, aren't you, to react in a more unhelpful way. Yeah, definitely. But I've also found that sometimes I've just had to walk away. So sometimes I've just had Mm. to pause. Sometimes I've had to recognise that actually, do you know what? That's not going to work today. (laughs) I'm too exhausted. I'm too overwhelmed with things that's going on. You know, for example, it's been a really difficult week this week. And I've struggled a little bit with everything feeling on top of me. So sometimes I've had to just be kind to myself, if that makes sense. So there's been occasions where if we were going to challenge some of the fear foods, then sometimes I think, do you know what? It's not going to hurt if I don't do it today and I'll do it tomorrow. And it's about choosing my battles. So sometimes, and initially that didn't fit well with me because I was like, I need to do this. I need to push forward. But sometimes I need to recognise that I'm important in all this as well. And it's far better sometimes to just pause a little bit, to just pause concentrate a little bit on me, find a little bit more energy so that next time I can push forward on things that I need to. Mm. Yeah, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? And I think it's just really validating as well just to for people to hear this, that actually, you know, as a carer, as a loved one, it does impact you too, doesn't it? You're going through it absolutely 100%. You know, you do really need to look after yourself, fill up your own energy tank and have a bit of self-preservation in there because otherwise you're just going to get burnt out, aren't you? You really are. 
And I have been there. I think that's the thing. I have been there. I've been to there. I remember once where I was just, it felt as if somebody turned the tap on and I couldn't stop crying. And that isn't like me at all. And I spoke to a good friend and I went, I don't know what's wrong with me. And she said, there's nothing wrong with you. And she said, probably everything is just coming out of you now. And that's okay. And eventually the tap stopped, (laughs) but it just seemed to go on forever. And it didn't matter what it was, anything would just set me off. It wasn't necessarily related to Poppy, but I just had all, I think I had all these emotions and I was being trying to be strong for her, for my son, for everybody. And it just had to come out somewhere. But it was, yeah, it was really hard. And it just made me realise that I've got to think about myself in this as well. So how are you looking after yourself in all of this? Like, what are your sort of top tips for anyone who's listening and just experiencing some of that burnout and emotional fatigue? Like, how do you stay sane and keep your energy at least a little bit topped up through it all? I think it's fair to say I'm still working on that. And I'm not an expert in it. And that's what I was saying to you in the beginning. I'm just a mum and I'm still learning as I go along. And there are times like this week, for example, but there are things that I have to remind myself. So as I mentioned about the book, but I'm actually reading my own book again, which sounds again, sounds strange, but sometimes it's like, oh yeah, do you remember this, Emma? So apply this to yourself because this is why you wrote it in the first place. So some of the things that I'm reminded myself to do is pockets of time. So if you said to me, right, Emma, I need you to have the whole afternoon off, I couldn't. I'm not in a position at the moment to leave Poppy too long. So I have to be around in the house. So for me, it's pockets of time. So it might be walking the dog. But previously, I might have walked the dog and listened to something related to a podcast, maybe related to eating disorders or something like that. But sometimes it's good to have some non-ED time. So non-eating disorder time so that I can listen to some music or just listen to a podcast, something that's not related to that And it just, that certainly helps me. So other things that I found is keep a sense of humour. And my friends and I, when we go for a walk and we just start giggling. So we always end up and she's having some difficulties, not related to eating disorders. And we both start laughing. And sometimes that kind of giggle and that laughter just gives us enough to lighten it. So for me, it's about having that friends or family that you can lean on, that you can openly say do you know what life's pretty rubbish right now and have that giggle but actually you can get it all out then and then the other things that I found is for me it's about having a little bit of and I know I've said pockets of time but I'm now beginning to do things that I enjoy so talking to yourself for example raising awareness I know it's related to eating disorders but for me I'm really passionate if I can help one more person and I say one more because people are coming to me and going how much it's helping but if I can help a family feel less alone or somebody go actually yeah there is somebody else out there that gets it then that's brilliant and that kind of boosts me because I love to help people so it's all about things that I'm passionate about and I've put my life on hold for three years and to some extent I still am There's lots of things that I can't do, but I'm trying to focus on the things that I can rather than things I can't. And the great thing at the moment is we live in a world where things are online. So there's lots of things that I can do now that I'm joining different groups unrelated to eating disorders. But 
gives me a little bit of time of me time. And I think that's really important for us to have it. And I've got to say, I haven't got it right all the time. There are times where I forget to do what I need to do and forget your own advice. And that's okay. Tomorrow's another day and you can always start tomorrow. But those are the things that's really helped. And I just trying to be a bit kinder to myself, as you were saying, that be a best friend of myself as well. So try not to beat myself up if I've had a hard day and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, that sort of self-compassion and real grace and self-kindness is so essential, isn't it? And I love this, what you talk about, you know, the sort of pockets of time and like you say, like having us to kind of find a bit of humour in everything as well. It's important, isn't it? <laughs> oh, definitely. So I've got to give you this funny example. So we were doing food and I've taken over some of them. That might not be the right word, but I'm preparing the meals now for Poppy, which was a challenge for me to do that because she didn't want to give that up. And that was difficult, but we are there now and it's working a lot better for now. And we, when Poppy's ready, we'll start introducing her back in. But when she started pairing the food herself and we were weighing it out, we got to this rice and it needed to roughly be around 100 grams according to the meal plan. Now, she's very specific. It has to be 100. It could be under 100. But as she was doing it, it went over 100. And I was like, oh, that's okay. It's fine. I think it was something like 101, 102 grams. But to her, no, it had to be 100. And I don't know why I did it. But I started in a really high-pitched, silly voice. I started saying something like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, it can't be 101. The world's going to end. Oh, my word. Yeah, that's it now. And I just kind of just been really silly with my arms in the air and just and I looked at and I thought oh my gosh I've probably gone a little bit too far and she started laughing but then she started taking the mickey out of me by going oh my gosh it can't be 98 grams because if it's 98 grams the world's gonna end and before you knew it we were both giggling and the great thing is we got to the 100 101 grams which might sound silly to some, but to somebody who is so fixed that it can't be anything over 100, that was a massive achievement for us. And also, we were able to diffuse some of the anxiety, if you like. So, and I've used various other things when we've just been silly and it, we've had, it sounds silly as well, we've had a baguette fight. So <laughs> I bought this baguette and cut it in half and I said to her, which one do you want? We started having a bit of a baguette fight in the middle of the living room. The dog loved it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was about that actually food can be fun. And let's have a little bit of fun because sometimes we've been too serious in a way. And that's a lot of the things that I've been doing. So another example is it had been snowing. And again, don't know why I did it. I think it's because I'm a big kid by heart. I'm going with that. You know, got a snowball threw it at it, caught the back of her. She looked round and started throwing snowballs at me. And she said, Mum, I needed that because she was having a really hard time. And we were just giggling and laughing and big kids again. But it's those moments that I love, those moments where they're not related anything to the eating disorder. And it just brings snippets back of her and me, if you like, because sometimes I can be too focused in, got to do this, got to do that, we've got to push on this, da 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 you forget that actually there is a life outside of this for both of you, not just your loved one, for you as well. 
Mm-hmm. No, that's such great reflection, actually. And I think, you know, it's a very common thing. I think when someone's suffering from an eating disorder, they feel that all everyone wants to talk about is food or what they're eating or not eating. And they almost like the person gets lost in the illness. And I think just with what you're describing there, it sounds like you're really getting back to Poppy, aren't you? And, you know, being more playful, being able to have fun, being able to kind of connect with her and yeah, not really focusing on food, just focusing on being silly and all those good things. Yeah. And I like to do that. I like to do that. I try and say to her every day, we need to do something every day that you enjoy, just something. And I say, again, it doesn't have to be long. It could be just listening to some music. It could just be, I don't know, just putting a piece of jigsaw into a jigsaw piece, just something. It doesn't matter. You don't have to do all the jigsaw, but just something that you enjoy just to get her out of the routine of the eating disorder thoughts, all that kind of stuff. And it gives me a focus as well, if that makes sense. It changes my thoughts as well, because I can be too ingrained in it. So it helps both Mm. of us. And one of the things I talk about is, you know, I talk about our journey and I recognise that my daughter has the eating disorder, but it feels as if it's ours because I love her so much and it has affected and it's taken so much out of her that I want her to have a life on her terms. So for me, that's often where I kind of, maybe that's my fix-it mode coming in, if you like. But I recognise then that I need to hand over that baton at some point so that Mm. I am that dolphin, as we talk about when we talk about those animals. And then if she needs me, I am there. We're not quite there yet, but that's where I want to get to. Mm. Sure. Well, it sounds like there's, there's lots of like dolphin-esque <laughs> practices yeah. in there. And I think just to really sort of emphasize as well what you're talking about earlier about how much the validation has really mm. helped that, you know, it sounds like, you know, doing that active listening, asking the questions, being really sort of curious and compassionate and wanting to know how is it for you? Like, I want to understand, like, you know, I want to kind of stand in your shoes and really offering that sort of empathy has really been a way to sort of connect and allow her to begin to be a bit more open with you. Definitely. I definitely agree with that. And I think she has even commented how that's really helped. And I think other people, when I talk to other people that are going through this, the people that are like my daughter, they say, you get it. How do you understand it so much? And I said, it's because I've been talking to her and I've been asking her. So go on, tell me what you're going through because I want to understand. And I always think if you can understand, then you're halfway there. And I don't mean to say that it's all going to be sorted, but at least then she knows that I get it. And I don't get everything. And I often say to her, look, you know, I'll never understand completely what you're going through. But help me to understand a little bit. And by understanding a little bit, then I'm pure. And I think that, just like you were saying, it opens those channels of communication to us. Mm. Yeah, no, so great to hear that. And I just think it's just for anyone listening, you know, your tendency as a carer, as a parent, is you're going to so want to fix it. You're going to have really intense emotions around it. You're going to want to run away from it. But sometimes the most helpful thing you can do is, you know, to just be curious, to be compassionate, to listen, just to try and understand in baby steps. And I think that can sometimes feel as though you're not doing anything. But actually, like, as you're saying, 
it is the most powerful thing, isn't it? And it's allowed you to reconnect again with your daughter. And it's also probably very gradually bringing about some little shifts and change. Yeah, definitely. And like you're saying about the fix it, I remember saying to her, look, what can I do? And sometimes she said to me, mum, all I want from you is a hug. And I was like, hey, what? You know, and there's me like, yeah, but I know what to do. And I did it. And all my mind's going, but you just want a hug. But I just want you to do this, this and this. And my mind's going bonkers. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, actually, she just wants somebody really to just say it's going to be okay just by, you know, just holding her for a few minutes. And then in my head, I was thinking, yeah, but you're fixing it a bit there, aren't you, Emma? <laughs> so I'll have to kind of process it into my head. But and I think that's what's helped me go and actually, what do you need from me right now? And sometimes it might not be at that moment that I might ask that. So once she's her emotions, once she's come out of that emotional wave, sometimes I might say to her, actually, what would have been helpful? What could I do next time that would help you? Mm. And that's also, that's in a way that's building up my skills, isn't it? So that I can help her. And sometimes she says, actually, there isn't anything, mom. I just need you to be there. Yep. Yeah okay that's fine and so sometimes it's those moments go do you know what I'm here for you yeah no and I think it's so true isn't it that as well sometimes you won't get it right but you can always reflect on things and like you're saying you can think about what could have been done differently and you can always sort of go back and do that rupture and repair can't you you know you can say like you know next time what would be helpful and or, you know, you can both apologise, maybe if it didn't go as you wanted. It's all learning. You don't have to be perfect and get it right all the time. Yeah, and that's so true for me as well. I put myself under a lot of pressure to be perfect, to be a perfect mum, to get it right, because this is such an awful illness, not just for them, but for the family, for anybody going through it. It's really awful. And I did beat myself over, you know, if I'd lost my temper, if I didn't say the right thing, all those kind of things, or if we were going backwards. And I had to recognize that I am just human and I'm not going to get it right every time. And that's okay. And that was a journey in itself. And as I said, it's this journey is three years. And I know that I'm not the same person as I was in the beginning. And I've learned and I've grown and I've worked through my insecurities of having to be perfect and having to have all the answers and everything like that. And sometimes I don't and that's okay. And it's okay if I do lose it sometimes. I, you know, she told me off of the other day when she went, Mom, will you stop rolling your eyes? (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) Because it was just, you know, when you think, oh gosh, here we go again in my head's going, oh, can I not just have one day when... Sometimes the arguments will start seven o'clock in the morning and you're not awake, which is where my eyes might roll and I go, oh, but it doesn't make me a bad person and it doesn't make me a bad parent. It just makes me just like everybody else, just human. And that's okay. And the amount of times where we've both kind of said, actually, sorry, mum, sorry, Poppy. You know, I didn't mean that. And that's okay because that is good role modeling just to say, actually, there are going to be times where I don't get it right. There's going to be things that I say that I don't mean, but it doesn't mean to say that I don't love you or care for you. It's just that my emotions have just blown up and I struggle to keep them under control that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're just a human being. (laughs) 
Exactly. <laughs> so true. But sometimes we think we have to be strong or we have to get it right every time. And that's not the case. Mm. So Emma, if people want to get hold of your book or, you know, I don't know if you're available for people to get in touch with you or whatever, but do you want to sort of share anything that you would like to share in terms of, you know, the book or, you know, yeah. contact? Oh, thank you. So by all means, people can contact me. I've got a website. So it's Emma Carter co.uk and people can have a look at who I am it's on there there's lots of links to all the social medias that I've got on there and also you can get it from it's on Amazon I think it's Kindle at the moment but if they want a paper copy then it's through my website but it doesn't matter if people don't even if they just want to message me because I know what it can be like when you can feel alone you can feel just lost that you've lost hope so many times that I just didn't fear that I could get through this and so many times I felt that I just wanted to pick up my keys and run away and let somebody else deal with it and bring it back if you like when she's 18 and she's fixed (laughs) because I couldn't cope with it and I just wanted to just get my story out just to raise awareness really about eating disorders and the impact that it can have. And I'm so pleased some of the feedback that I'm getting from people that don't have, they don't have anybody in their families with eating disorders. And the things that I talk about that have helped me, it's helping them, which is just incredible. So I just think if I can help one person to feel less alone and keep that fight going, keep that hope going in them and hold on to not yet, because that's been my key words that we're not there yet, but we will be. We will and we can get through this. And it's just holding on to that hope that we will get through it. But yes, please do. People can contact me on emmacarter.co.uk. Brilliant. Well, I shall make sure that's in the show notes, Emma. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Okay, well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for sharing so openly. I think it's been incredibly helpful and inspiring conversation. And, you know, I just wish you and also Poppy all the best along this road, this healing road. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting. I could probably chat to you for hours. (laughs) (laughs) I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me today. It's really, really appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did and do go and check out all of Emma's info and all about her book in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm